I, about a year ago, uh, had taken something to a family. Um, wasn't anything special. Um, and I, I just thought it would help them, and it wasn't helping me. I need to have it. So I took it to them, and, and on the way home, just felt convicted that I was supposed to take them meat. And um, I just kind of argued with God about that because, you know, that would cost me something. <laughs> you know, I, and, uh, and so I, um, I thought about that and uh, I finally decided, well, I better go get some, buy some meat and take it to them and, and uh, didn't know why uh, all that was what God was doing. But it was just, you know, it was more for me than it was for God. Or, or more for me than it was for that family, uh, for sure. Um, but anyway, I, I took it to them. They kind of quizzed me about it. And um, I said, well, this this is no, I get no credit at all for this at all. Because I said, this is just a, a, a matter of me being obedient to God. And um, this is what he wanted me to do. Oh, okay. And that was the end of that. And, and we were all fine and dandy. But... As I as I share that this morning, I, I want to talk to you. We've we've gone through this uh, January series on a number of different things, uh, spiritual aspects of our life, and so today I want to talk to you about giving. And then next week we're going to head into a new series on Colossians, uh, the book of Colossians. As we start this morning, um, I want us to look at a text of scripture that we don't normally associate with giving. But I want us to look at that from John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The first thing I want to say to us today is that you and I are most like God when we are giving. When we are taking, receiving, hoarding, keeping, being stingy in our spirits, we are not being like God at that point. For it says, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. Um, God is always generous. That's how he is with you. That's how he is with me. He is just a generous God. And so if, if, um, if we're going to be like God, we have to be Generous like he is. And if we have a stingy um, spirit within us, um, we probably ought to just keep our money because God doesn't really need it. And you're not going to be blessed very much in your giving. (laughs) God wants us to get to that place in our lives where we just have that generous heart that God has. Um, And then the second thing from this text that I want you to see is the motivation for our giving. Our giving should be motivated by, it should be rooted in our love for God and our love for man. It says, for God so loved the world. He looked around, he saw the needs of the world, and immediately he wanted to give. Again, motivation. If, if we aren't motivated by love for God, if there is some other motivation in us that causes us to give, we probably ought to be careful in our giving. But our real motivation in giving ought to be our love for God 
And then, secondly, our love for mankind and for the world that God so much loves. So, first of all, don't ever give out of guilt. God is a lot more interested in your heart than he ever is your wallet. Now, if he has your wallet, if he has your heart, he will have your wallet. But just because he has your wallet doesn't mean he has your heart. And there is no amount of wallet that you can give God that will impress him until he has your heart. God wants your heart. That's his number one priority in your life is to have your heart. Secondly, don't give with reluctance. Give out of a cheerful heart. Second Corinthians says, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then, thirdly, don't give to impress people or to cover up bad behavior on your part. <laughs> Look at this verse. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Those are very important matters for us. We, we need to know that when we give, it should never be to try to impress anyone. The Pharisees were doing that. I mean, they were, they were tithing on their garden <laughs> herbs, <laughs> making sure and drawing attention to it, and yet they weren't being fair. They weren't being faithful. They were not being just with the people around them. And God wasn't impressed with that at all. And, and what you give will never cover up for sin. Ever. Don't ever think that you can give your way and atone for your sin. There's only one way to have your sin atoned for, and that is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and no amount of giving will ever take care of that. You give because you love God with all your heart. And then your giving should reflect who you are. And it should reflect you and your best. It, what did God give? He gave his one and his only son. Now, there wasn't anything else that God could have given us that cost him more, that was worth more, than his one and only son. I still cannot fathom what it was like from heaven to watch Jesus being crucified on the cross. I have no idea. I, I know, you, you parents, you know what it's like to hurt for your children at different times in their life. I, I don't understand what it was like for God to give his one and only son. But that's what he did. And so I want to say to you, when you give, if you can make your giving as personal and re reflective of who you are as possible. That's a good thing. And when you can give your best, you want to do that. And lastly, your giving should be purposeful. There ought to be a purpose in your giving. And for here, God gave that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. 
And so when you give, especially in terms of offerings and that kind of thing, you want to give in such a way that you leave a legacy. You want to give to things that really matter. Um, And and so that takes some planning. We'll talk about that later on. Now, um, there are six foundational biblical principles that I want to walk through this morning in terms of giving. And there's a lot more out there that I could go to, but I'm just going to keep it narrowed uh, to these six this morning and just touch on them briefly and try to bring some scriptures to you um, in light of them. If you and I are going to follow God with our resources and with our money and all of that, if we're going to be good with our money, and we're going to win with our money. We need to follow these these principles. And the first one is this. If we're ever going to be able to give, we have to work. So the first thing is we have to earn an honest living and work. Proverbs 24, verse 27 says, Prepare your outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field. And afterward, build your house. And so he says the first thing that you and I have to do is is really take care of some work issues and and get that lined up in our lives. And sometimes in in our culture, we want to take care of me first instead of taking care of work and all of that. And and Proverbs says, no, we have to to make work a priority in our lives and and do that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now, that doesn't fly very well in our American culture today. But that's scripture. That's God, and that's what he has to say to us. And we we need to know that God wants us to work. Anytime that we can work, we ought to take advantage of that and, and work. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it. With all your heart is working for the Lord and not for men. The second principle is this. Get out of debt. No one wins in life by spending more money than you take in. This is just a clear scriptural principle that flows through through scripture. The more debt you have, the less freedom God has to do whatever he wants with you. The more debt you have, the less freedom God has to be able to use you. I was a single pastor back in Belfouche. I had no income from the church, and I was working all kinds of different jobs uh, putting food on the table and that kind of stuff, and my engine blew up on my 1976 Vega. I didn't know what to do, and one of the ladies in the church came and lent me $3,000 to go out and buy a 1977 Cutlass Supreme. And it was a nice car. I loved it. I did not like the price tag that came with it. For whatever reason, that lady decided that she could control every decision that I made in the church because I owed her money. 
And I can tell you I was never, ever so happy as the day I paid the last dollar off to her. And I paid it off ahead of time. I worked extra hours. I did everything I could so that I was not under her control and under her thumb. When you and I are in debt, we are always under someone else's control. And that means that we are not under the control of God. The bank can tell us what we have to do. And God is left out there high and dry with what's left after what the bank says. So the more debt you have, the less freedom you have to obey God with whatever he wants to do with your life. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Now, we live in a culture where debt is just rampant. I mean, it's so common that we don't even think about it in our culture. And so fixing this in your lives isn't something that you're just going to go out and take care of tomorrow, (laughs) probably, for most of you. But it needs to be a goal. It needs to be something that you work towards. Dave Ramsey says, Our great-grandparents believed that debt was absolutely sin. Our grandparents thought it was just dumb. Our parents borrowed money on a few things, and we borrow money on everything. That's not a good trajectory. Without going all the way back to our great-grandparents, let me suggest a couple things. If and when you use debt... It should only be used for things that generate income or have a good potential of generating income or building equity in your life. Education may fall under those two categories. I said may. I think it's getting less and less true in our culture today, but um, it, it can fall under those two categories. I'll move on. The third biblical principle is that you and I need to plan the way we handle our finances. We need to plan your giving, your saving, and your spending. Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 30 says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? Sometimes we, as American Christians, we, we, you know, we put thought into a lot of things, but we don't sit down and really think through and plan the way we handle our money. Proverbs 27, verse 23 says, Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. Take a look at you know, your source of income. For them, it was their herds and their flocks and all of that. But know where you're at. Have a plan for your life. Proverbs 21, verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. So we need to be people who plan um, in such a way that leads to profit. John Wesley um, says, Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Great, great words from him. Here's the fourth biblical principle that I want to share with you today. And that is control your spending. (laughs) This is something that's so foreign to me. (laughs) 
<laughs> so foreign to most Americans. Uh, and this is probably of the six things, the thing I'm struggling most with in my life. Um, trying to uh, fix this, because I don't think this area is satisfying God right now in our household and my family and, and all of that. We need to learn as God's people to live on about 80% of what we take in. Because 10% of it doesn't belong to us anyway. That's God's. We also ought to be investing about 10% in for the future or saving for emergencies and all of that. So we ought to learn to live on about 80% of what you take in. And that means a couple things. First of all, it means that we ought to stop and enjoy what we have. And as Americans, we are trained from the morning time we get up till the time we go to bed. We are told all day long, everything you see on TV, everything you see as you drive down the highway, tells you that you don't have enough stuff. And what you have is not good enough. It needs to be replaced. It needs to be updated. And your technology is out of date two weeks after you buy it. And nothing is ever good enough for you. And nothing is ever good enough for us. And we are the most discontent, malcontents, the world has ever, ever known. And as long as that is true of God's people, we are not going to have a handle on our money in a way that honors God. The founding fathers of this church that we look back to and revere lived simple lives that you and I would not want to live. But they were some of the most contented people you would ever run across, and they were much more content with almost nothing compared to our lack of content with everything that we have. We need to develop that gift of contentedness and control our spending. We need to practice contentment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. How many of you can just say, There is a certain level of contentedness in my life? You need to have that. And one of the refreshing things, by the way, of, our, of a our young generation that is coming up, is there is a level of contentedness there in some things that people in my generation and the generation between us don't have. But they actually desire to have less stuff and just to be have relationships and, and go back to a simple life. And that's a, a good thing. Here's another thing. Um, we, we can't be people who gamble. We can't be people who play the lottery and bank on getting a billion dollars or a million dollars or whatever it is. The odds of that are, I mean, you can get hit by lightning um, 20 times before you ever won the lottery. That is so stupid. I don't know what else to say um, other than that. The lottery taxes the poor people. You watch people. You go in and try to pay for your gas, and you stand behind three people who you know they don't have a dime to their name, and they're putting money out to buy a lottery ticket and hope they win. 
And so the people who buy lottery tickets are the people who need their money the worst. And if you and I spend money on the lottery ticket, we are just encouraging our culture to steal from the poor people to support some program that doesn't help poor people at all. It usually helps the middle class. And and the whole thing is just a scam that ruins our culture and and ruins lives and and doesn't help anyone. I'll move on real quick. (laughs) The next thing we need to do is save for the future. We need to adopt a 10-10-80 plan where God gets his 10%, we save and invest for the future with another 10%, and we live on 80% of what we take in. The scriptures talk about in Proverbs that God gives wealth without sorrow. That's an interesting phrase. God gives wealth without sorrow. And he's saying that in Proverbs in reference to people who build wealth, but they build it with sorrow. In other words, they build their wealth by hurting other people. Or they build their wealth by hurting themselves and their own families and all of that. God, he says, builds wealth without sorrow. There's nothing wrong with building wealth. What is wrong is when you build it with sorrow. So you always want to build wealth in such a way that it doesn't damage your family, their values, their morals, everything else, and you want to build wealth in such a way that it doesn't hurt other people, that you don't hurt other people and walk on other people as you build your own wealth. That's called justice. That's called fairness. That's called compassion and the love of God. Secondly, you build wealth without it owning you. You never allow the wealth you build to get you into a a position where it begins to own you and it controls you and you can't do, and God can't come and say to you, I want you to do this with your wealth. If you get to that point where you have something that God can't put his fingers on, you're in a very sad state spiritually because God is Lord of everything. And there shouldn't be any aspect of your life that God can't put his finger on and say, I want you to do this. And it doesn't matter if it's different from what everyone else is doing, but God needs to have, he needs to be king and Lord and master of everything in your life, including your resources. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 9, says this, Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. See that save for the future, even the ant does that. It knows that winter is coming and it provides, gets ready for that in the summer. This is a biblical principle that you and I need to have an emergency fund set up aside. Because emergencies happen, especially to those who don't have an emergency fund. <laughs> Genesis chapter 41, Joseph. You look at the life of Joseph and what did he did? There were seven years coming of great plenty. 
great crops and all of that. And, and what did Joseph do? He saved up and stored bins. And I'm sure people thought he was just absolutely ridiculous. I'm sure he got criticism for storing up ahead. All that grain. Why don't we just use it? But God had a plan there. And God wants to have a good plan for you. And we need to be prepared for tomorrow. And so when tomorrow came and there were seven years of drought ahead, Joseph was ready. And when they got to the end of those seven years, there was nothing left. People had sold everything they had. They'd given all their money away. They were selling their, their children into slavery. They were doing all kinds of things just to keep alive with food, buying the last kernels of, of grain that Joseph had stored up, but he had saved ahead. Proverbs 21, verse 20 says, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Now, friends, I, I just, this is not comfortable stuff. But friends, if, if, if you do not save for an emergency, and then you go to the other extreme where you're all in a bunch of debt, you're just two steps back from where God wants you to be as a Christian. God does want us to get out of debt so that he has control of everything and then he wants us to be prepared for emergencies that come up and prepared for the future. And then the sixth principle that I want to share with you and, and there's two different sets. There's, a, there's, um, there's an Old Testament set for giving uh, in the Old Testament, there was the regular tithe, there was the rejoice tithe, and then there was almsgiving in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there is a, a set that's very similar to that, almost falls in the same categories, but there's tithes and there's offerings and there's alms. And the first thing I want to say to you is, is that the tithes are different from offerings and alms in that the the tithe is a debt that you and I owe to God. God just says, the first 10% of everything I make belongs to him. Now, I can take it, but if I do, if I use it, I'm robbing him. And that's not very good for pastors to do. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's just, that's just a fact of the matter. If I'm taking something that God has already said is his, and I use it for my own self, I am stealing from God. And so God says, that is a debt that I owe to God. Now, having said that, I want to say this. God is never impressed by dollars. He has never been impressed by dollars. He is impressed by percentages. Do you remember the Pharisees and they were coming with their tithes and they were making a big deal at the temple of their giving and they were making sure the coins clanked as they went in the offering plate and all of that. And they were so proud of what they gave and they were given their large amounts and all of that and their, their garden, you know, tithe and all of that. And they were, they were making a big deal of it. And along comes, comes this widow who has almost nothing. Two mites, you know, hardly worth two pennies to us. And she comes and she gives her two mites. And Jesus looked on that and said, better than all the other gifts. 
that the Pharisees gave. And I want to tell you, friends, if you have very, very little, don't ever, ever feel guilty about that. Don't ever feel bad about a small gift given to the Lord. He honors that. He loves that. And he loves that just as much as the big donations that come in for different things. You give what you can. God honors the heart and he honors the percentage. That's what he cares about. But this first one, we need to be reminded that, again, God owns it and he controls it. And the other two, as Christians, we... We control it. God says you can do what you want, but we ought to submit all of that under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we pray to wisdom. We pray for wisdom that God would help us to know when we ought to give offerings and when we ought to give um, alms um, or help to the poor. Now, offerings are gifts that you bestow to others. And that is something that you and I ought to pre-decide. Um, you and I will get hit up in the mail. We will get hit up on phone calls. We will get hit up all the time for needs. Priscilla and I sit down once a year, and we, we plan out our giving of, of just excess beyond the tithe. If we're going to do anything special, we sit down and we budget that out for the year. When I get a phone call and they ask me to help support this or that or something else, and I simply say to them, that is not in my giving budget. Most people are blown away because they haven't heard of a giving budget. A few people will ask me, well, then how do I get in your <laughs> giving budget? <laughs> and I will explain, you know, that I, we, we sit down and these things are the things that are really important. They're core values in my life. I care about the unborn child, so I'm going to support right to life. I care about this and I care about that. So these are the things that I'm going to give money to. I'm going to give money to Christian education. I'm going to give money to this and that and something else. There are many other good things that other people will support who are not Christians. But I'm going to focus my giving on things that I have a core value and that are important to me and I'm going to focus there because if I just give to everything, I'm not helping anything. And there, you know, there's a lot of non-Christians out there who will support good and other causes that um, will never support the causes that I care about and you care about. And so I'm going to focus that. I'm going to plan that. I'm going to budget for that. I'm going to pre-decide where I give money to. And when things come up, it's not a big question for me as to whether I'm going to do this or that. I just look at my budget and say, no, if I'm going to help you do that, then I'm not going to be able to do something over here that's really important to my heart, that God has laid on my heart. And so I want to suggest to you that you ought to think that through ahead of time and figure out what is it that God wants me to use my resources on, my extra resources above the tithe. And then there's almsgiving, um, which is the, the scriptural term for it. We would just say helping out the needy, um, orphans and widows and their distress, that kind of thing. Augustine said not to give to those in need what is to you superfluous. I can't say that word, but you know what it is. Is akin to fraud. If I have something that I just don't really need, <laughs> and there's somebody out there that really needs something, um, 
and I just keep it to myself, that's akin to fraud. I want to say to us in regard to tithing here that you and I will never truly be healthy, wholesome Christians without tithing. Tithing, and still to this day, and I, I grew up with it. I did not grow up in the most godly household. I, and for the life of me, I don't understand why this is true. But my parents reinforced, I don't even know if they did it themselves, but they taught me to tithe. <laughs> that was one thing that I was taught right on. <laughs> but anyway, you know, to this day, every now and then, there'll, become, there'll, there'll be those times when it's a test, where God says, you know, test me on this. And, and so it will test your character. It will test your trust in God. It will test your obedience sometimes where, where it really matters, because what really matters to us as Americans is our wallet. And if you're not going to obey God there, you're pro- probably not really obedient to God in a lot of areas in your life. Malachi chapter 3 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Now, if I, as I look at that, the first thing it tells me is that tithing is good insurance. God is the best insurance company in the world. I fully believe that. And and so this tells us that that tithing protects us against disease and disaster and financial calamity. Um, It it helps take the monkey off of our backs. And when when we don't tithe, money seems to disappear. We we go on through life. um, You know, if I'm being stingy with God, you know what? I get less satisfied with things. I just constantly am looking for other stuff. And expenses tend to pile up. There were, there were some rough years. We went through about 10 years when my kids were little where for 10 years in a row I spent out of pocket after insurance paid the bills, out of pocket $10,000 every year in medical bills. While I was here in my early years pastoring here. During those years, tithing was never an issue, but it was hard. (laughs) And I still to this day believe that 90% with God's blessing will always go further than 100% without God's blessing. The last thing I want to close with, and I need to, Um, is this. Tithing creates the kind of churches you want to be a part of. How many of you would just be excited to attend a church that had to have a fundraiser, an auction, a bake sale, this and that on an ongoing basis to pay the bills? If that becomes the mission of the church, the church is not worth being part of. People who tithe build great churches that can do what God wants the church to do in the world. The greatest churches in the world today are filled by people who tithe 
Because those are the churches on mission. Those are the churches doing what God has called them to do in the world. And they are not spending all of their time trying to figure out how to pay the bills and what fundraiser to do next. And all their committee meetings are spent on planning this and planning that and and trying to make things work. When you and I as a church can focus our time and energy on doing what God cares about, that's what he blesses. And that's the kind of church that you and I want to be part of.